that our anonymous donor on to the share today, dedicated in honor of my wife. And he said, for all the things that she does for Klal Yisrael, and if you don't know what it is that she does, so you have to educate yourself. We are moving towards the quote-unquote endgame. We've had, until this point, a whole bunch of plagues. And now we have, in, we're in our first source, which is, we're starting at Perik Yud, starting at Pasuk Dalad, where power was again being threatened and now being told, that if you don't let the people go, then locusts will descend. And then there is a wonderful description about how profoundly bad this will be. And what's interesting about it, you know, th- there's some things that I've said before that I don't want to get into too much, but if you look at Pasuk Zion, apparently using today's language, the servants of Paro, of day Paro, and I, again, I would make a distinction between advisors and wizards and others. This is of day Paro, which makes it sound like the people working in the palace, the ones who uh, should have real, real fear of Paro, but rather it says, Vayomor of day Paro elav, which means that the, the people who are normally yes sir, yes sir, yes sir, and, uh, and they're right now speaking to Paro, they're taking that initiative, which itself is, to me is absolutely shocking. They're taking the initiative and they're saying, just let these people go already. They're giving advice that they were not asked to give and they're not advisors, at least as far as I can tell. And they're saying to Paro, who is supposedly this all-powerful Paro, and they're saying to him, just let them go already because Egypt is lost. Now, for them to say Egypt is lost is itself an indication that Egypt is lost, which means that, that that's exactly the point. You can't say something like this. I mean, today you have the problem with powerful people who nobody can, you know, can give a different opinion because you'll lose your job or stature or status or whatever. And for the Avde Paro to be doing this, to me, is absolutely shocking that they can do this. But I'm repeating myself, but all the more so. For them to say that Egypt is lost is itself absolutely true, because now Egypt is absolutely lost if people like this can say this to Paro. Now, of course, the question is, what triggered them? Right? That, that's today's language, right? What triggered them? to be able to get to that particular point and to say this, my suspicion is, look, the easy thing to say is, you know what, these things build up. You know, one plague after another, after another, after another. And the, the plagues till now have really focused on two separate issues. Sometimes there's been some interaction. One issue is personal pain, right? The other issue has been economic pain. And sometimes there's been a combination between the two. For example, I could just say that dam is personal pain because nothing to, to drink. And on the other hand, you, it's economic because it will destroy all kinds of things. And more than that, you have to then start digging to find wells. So that could be some physical pain. But again, I don't want to overstate all of this. At this point, you could have said that this is now total economic destruction because anything that wasn't destroyed from the previous plagues now is being destroyed. But there may be another issue over here, and that is the issue of the common denominator of all three plagues in Parshat Bo is darkness. And if you're the sun god, then darkness could be very, very disturbing. And this is going to eclipse the sun because of all of the all of the arbe the next one will be a plague of darkness and the next one will happen in the middle 
of the night. So I'm going to say it again. The common denominator over here is the darkness, and if you don't get the connection with the sun god, then you kind of miss the, the significance of what's taking place. But as I said, I've spoken about that before, and that's not really what concerns me as much right now, but that may have been the trigger in order to, for them to say, you know, you've lost already, and just, you know, it's time to... Uh, Move on. If you look at Pasuk Tedvav, it actually then takes place. Darkness descends. And again, so easy to miss this, but there are two plagues of darkness, and maybe even three, right? Anything left over from the hail has now been destroyed by the locust. So nothing else is left. I've sinned against your God, I've sinned against you. Please pray to your God. And take away this death. So again, it's very interesting that the word death is used over here, more so than in the other ones. And again, this could be the perceived death of the sun god. I hope I'm not overstating this. Um, at least one person here knows that I'm not overstating this, correct? I, I just now read Pasuk Yud Zion. I'm not overstating this, but that's not but that's not our main focus right now. And they left the presence of Paro and they started to pray. And then God turned the wind around and took away all the locusts and so on. Nonetheless, Paro's heart was hardened and he didn't release the people. And, and, and here we've moved on a little bit now. So over here again, we have this Paro calling them, go and serve your God. You too are going to give me things to serve God. And it's also, this part I think is interesting, that Moshe says, you know, we're taking everything, and we don't know how it is that we're going to serve God until it is that we arrive there. And at this point, Paro says, you know, leave. Be careful, guard yourself. You will not see me again, my face again. The day you see me, you will die. Now, part of what we really should be intrigued about is why is this the first time that Paro has said this? You know, again, these two, two guys walk in and say, you know, let my people go. Paro should have immediately had said, what? Who like, Take them out and kill them. Just like, 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 like leave me alone. So that itself is very interesting that Paro doesn't do this. Now he finally says it, that I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely not going to see you again. Fine, as you said, you won't see me again. And we, we've, we've now come to the end, which means as much as Paro may have thought that there were negotiations taking place, we all know there were no negotiations over here for various reasons. There's no negotiations. Rather, it's Paro experiencing all kinds of pain that we can't begin to imagine, but there, are, there never were 
really negotiations. We're now in the next chapter. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, od nega achad. There's one more nega. Now, the first thing which is intriguing is the use of the word nega. In all the previous times, nega was not the word that was used, but rather the word that was used was there was makah and things like that, but not nega. And nega to me is intriguing. We'll, we'll address that in a moment. There's a famous Kabbalistic teaching that there are two things which are, generally we do this when we get to the middle of Vayikra someplace, the Tazriya, Mitzora, is that nega and oneg are from the same letters, are inverted one another, that you have nega and oneg, which is pleasure, and these are, in a certain sense, polar opposites. And therefore, instead of saying that Paro, who probably lives generally a life of complete hedonistic pleasure, is about to enter into yet another world of pain that he can't even imagine. Now, from the very beginning, God had said to Moshe, no, we're going to, he's going to get warn him, but he's going to say no. And then he's going to suffer more, and then warn him again, and then he's going to suffer more. And the suffering is, has been taking place, and that's part, apparently, of the, of the deal. But now God says, there's one more, that's it, one more, and then we get to, as I said, the end game at this point, and then uh, he's going to send you. Der by the way, I would almost be tempted to say, there's one more nega, and now go borrow things. You know, as if the financial part is the, is the nega. I know for some people that would actually be true, but it's not. And again, all the way through, God is manipulating feelings. And instead of feeling towards slaves superiority or feel disgust towards them, and these people are inferior, there was chen. Chain is, when you say tefillat haderech, one of the things you're saying, it may the people who I meet along the way over here, may I find chain in their eyes. May, may they see the part of me which is charming. May people like me, instead of people having xenophobia and fear and sus- suspicion of strangers, may people actually like. And here it says that the, these slaves were beloved to the Egyptians. So this thing I mentioned earlier about the Paro losing his servants, if they would have done polls at that point, they would have seen that the popularity of polls of Paro have fallen completely, while on the other hand, the popularity polls of Moshe are, are, are rising. Um, I'll, I'll, also, I'll also say to what extent Moshe's original, the original description of who Moshe is, as far as Bat Paro is concerned, this golden child born of the Nile and perhaps seen as some kind of a demigod, I wonder to what extent that guaranteed him till this point some type of, perfect, uh, of protection because maybe there were those who really believed it. But notice the emphasis over here, Ha'ish Moshe, Moshe the person, not Moshe anything else. Moshe the person, Moshe the human being is the person here who had this incredible amount of... Uh, of um, Again, he, he was respected. And Moshe says, this is what God said. Now, remember something that we saw at the end of Paragud, the end of chapter 10, that Paro says, you're never going to see me again. So this is over. Now we're in 
the 11th chapter, and what we're told over here is that God you know, says, well, sorry, Moshe says, God said at midnight, Ani now, there is a change between the tenth plague and the first nine plagues. The first nine plagues, Moshe and Aaron, to various extents, were involved in it. The tenth plague is God's plague. So when we say that, uh, that God himself took us out, and so on, that's ultimately because only one plague took us out. It wasn't the first nine that took us out. The first nine gave punishment. It was only the tenth one that took us out. And the tenth one that took us out, that was done by God himself. And that's why it says, and we say that in the Haggadah, that, that God did not send anyone else. And again, any kid you know, who's learned Sefer Shemot should be asking by the Seder, what do you mean there was no Shliach? God, the, what happened by the burning bush, by the snare? God says to Moshe, you know, you're going to be the one to do this. And, and Moshe and Aaron are the one who perform all of these things along the way. And I'll say it again. All of those were about punishments for Egypt. They, they, I don't want to overstate this, but I will. It had nothing to do with taking them out. Only one plague took them out. And that one plague is the one that's about to happen. And that one is indeed done by God. And that's what Moshe is informing. I, I want to say this a little bit deeper. The plague of the firstborn has another side to it, which we're going to see as we move on. And that other side to it is that God says something which power would have seen as completely absurd, and that is that Israel is my firstborn. Moshe can't say Israel's my firstborn. Aaron can't say that Israel's my firstborn. The only one who can say that Israel's my firstborn is God. Because the nature, meaning Aaron or Moshe can say, okay, the Nile will turn into blood. Okay which means the frogs and, 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 and so on. All, all the other ones are not, in a certain sense, personal, where God is saying, release my children or I'm coming after yours, which means that there is just a different texture to this than the others, and it really is that there's three, three, and three, and then one. And the three, three, and three can be analyzed in all kinds of ways. We can spend weeks on that, analyzing how those work, but there's, but there's one. There's, there's, there's one plague which releases them, and that is done by God. And that's why that, that turn of phrase is incredibly important. Ko amar Hashem, God says, I am making an appearance in Egypt. That, that, by the way, is incredibly important. We're going to try to come back to that. And all the firstborns will die. And there will be this incredible cry in Egypt. And now, by the way, on top of everything else, Egypt was built upon something which is called primogeniture, where the one who was the firstborn had a supreme position within every particular family. Power was the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn. I've said many times that the visual of what Egypt is built on is actually a pyramid. And the one who stands on top of the pyramid is Paro. So therefore, symbolically, that becomes really interesting when you're looking for a visual to describe this idea of primogeniture. And uh, over here, that is coming to an end right now. There's wonderful midrashim that talk about the, the firstborns get very upset. And they say to their fathers, you know, so far, Moshe's been nine for nine. You're like, what are you doing? We're going to die very soon. You better do, go tell power to, everybody release their slaves. Tell, tell them all to go. Enough, my speak, chalas. 
And uh, the fathers say, no, you know, over our dead bodies, which is great, because over your dead bodies, there's even a midrash that the kids start to kill their parents as, as part of the rebellion, as part of what, again, the unraveling of Egypt at that point is absolutely complete. And, and as I said, there's various expressions in the midrash. Nonetheless, over here, it says, There's going to be complete distinction among Israelites, there is going to be uh, quiet. There's going to be noise, screaming, and so on. Well, in Israel, there will be quiet, which is the, the distinction here. Now, we're still in Parakid Aleph. In Parakid Bet, we're going to learn a whole other side of this. Be patient. And then it continues, V'yerdu kol avdecha, one second, right. V'yerdu kol avdecha ela elai v'ishtach avali le'mortzei atav akola amashabarecha b'achariken etzei and then, just, I'm not translating everything, then the last couple of words of this verse, and then Moshe leaves with great anger. Now you realize something, because you didn't realize that till now, where Moshe says, and God said, you didn't realize where he was. You didn't realize that this is the same, ostensibly, the same conversation that had been taking place, where power said, you're not going to see me again. And power, and, and Moshe essentially is fine, but then Moshe says one more soliloquy. Oh, by the way, this is what's going to be happening next, and then Moshe walks out. So, till those last couple of words that Moshe worked out in anger, by the way, you know, towards towards Paro, till those words, I'll say it again, we did not know that Moshe was still there. We would have imagined that when Moshe says, as you wish, you don't want to see me again, I won't see you again, you would have imagined Moshe left at that point, and now you realize that we actually had a whole bunch of more verses until that takes place. Okay. God, by the way, then adds into Moshe, by the way, he's not even going to listen, and we need to do a couple of more wonderful things in Egypt, because we need more things to say over on the Seder night to our kids, so therefore... uh, Therefore, more is going to happen. And the way that I've previously formulated this is in brisker terminology that Paro turns from a gavra into a chefza. He's no longer a person with agency. Now he's just a prop for, you know, just like anybody brings props to their Lela Seder, Paro at this point is a prop in the telling over of the story. So again, this is really a conclusion. What comes right after this is going to be bet, and now becomes a whole new part where Torah gets taught, the, the mitzvah of the Rosh Chodesh is then given, and the instructions to do the Korban Pesach are all then given. So again, let's just pause. In source number three, the Psiktis says something which perhaps you already understood, although maybe it's debatable. When it says Odnega, how do you understand Odnega? Were there previous ones or not previous ones? None of the others were called Nega, so how can you say Odnega? So he understands if it's Odnega, then, then all the others were as well, and that's what it says in this uh, in, in source three, and the end of the line, Limeid al Sharma Nega'im. From this, we can extrapolate that all the others were Nega'im as well, although I'll say it again, we can debate this point because none of the others had been called Nega'im, although the Od Nega is interesting. Or I can say, there's one more thing I'm going to do to Paro, and this one will be a Nega, but, but I, I do want to go back to the word Nega for a moment. Let's look at Nega where it's used in the most... Uh, I mean, Nega is not used, generally. There's one close use of it till now, till this point in the Torah, which, but it's really not. 
It's Naga. It was touched, not, not Nega. It was very different. Yaakov's thigh, if I'm not mistaken. In source number four is where Nega is used. And the Nega is connected to Tzarat. It's connected to leprosy. And leprosy is itself very interesting. Because what, what is leprosy? Leprosy is something which is akin to death. Leprosy is the, the body withering away. Leprosy, in terms of halacha, creates distance between man and mikdash. The ultimate level of tum'ah, a word I can't translate other than the context, is the separation that the person has tzarat, which means that person is out, is is isolated outside of all of the encampments, as opposed to even tumatmet, which we would say again experientially dealing with death is far worse. But death is only outside of the makom kadosh. Over here, it's outside of all shalosh machanot. It's outside of the camp completely, which means that tsarat or the nega of tsarat is something which is isolation and complete separation. And I'm going to add one more element, which I think is true, and that's true of all Tum'ah, but especially of this Tum'ah, and that is it is the antithesis of holiness, which means the situation of Tum'ah means you can't, you can't eat the Korban, you can't, you can't be involved with the Tum'ah, you can't enter into the Mishkan, you can't enter the Beit HaMidash. That is what Tum'ah does, and again, that's the functional definition of what Tum'ah is. So to, to use the word nega. And of course, it's going to then lead to a death in every family. It's going to lead to some kind of uh, of tumat mate. But to talk about nega is interesting. And source number four simply gives you a bunch of examples of how nega is used in, in a really you know small area clustered over here. You'll notice along the way that it is nega and sarat. It's nega. It's nega. It's nega. Sarat. His gear. That's the that's being closed up. Also, you notice shchin is used over here as well, which is also now retroactively interesting because we know that that was one of the plagues as well. But I'll say it again, that the language which is used over here in this particular plague is being either borrowed or will later be utilized when we get to the whole section of Tzarat. And, and that itself should be interesting. And one of the things then you should start wondering about is, hold it, and to what extent was that the message that Moshe received from the very beginning when there was your hand in Tzarat and then take it out and then it gets healed and, and so on. Which, by, by the way, for me, that is a coming back to life. That, that, that is a, a people who are seen as a dead people that even something which looks like it's withering away can come back to life in the Jewish people. Am Yisrael Chai. I mean, I would see it as akin to the vision of the dry bones, that something which looks as if it's dead is coming back to life. And I think that the message that Moshe is going to hear, yes, Am Yisrael Chai, oh, right, Am Yisrael Chai, and we are, we are going to be marching out of here. And as much as you think it's, uh, that can't take place, that's what's taking place, and now you realize, ironically, meaning just now think in terms of framing the story, that that is something which Moshe is told in the very beginning. And now Paro at the end, who's this large and vibrant empire is now being told no death will touch every single element of your society and you're the ones who are withering away and you're the ones who are disappearing and again with this idea of antithesis of holiness which I think is actually incredibly important and that's part of what I want to try to get back to. In source number five, Rashi's commenting in Perak Yudal of Pasuk Dalid. So let's just read that one more time. That was the middle of source number two. Moshe Hashem. So that was the introduction to Makat Becharot. So Rashi commenting on this is going to tell us something which I think we now know. And he says, Moshe, as he's standing there in front of Paro, 
suddenly gets this epiphany, prophecy. He understands this is what's next. Again, power just said, you're never going to see me again. And God now comes and says to Moshe, okay, here's the end. This is what's going to happen. So again, Rashi's interesting that why is Moshe now saying this? And he didn't say this till now because God just now told him this. Because once he leaves now, he's never going to see him again. So it couldn't be that he said this other than God just now said to him. Now, Rashi did not say the only possible way of understanding this, as we'll see. And there are others who have difficulty with this Rashi for other considerations. But what Rashi said, again, just note it one more time. He said, God told him this. At this particular point, Moshe receives this prophecy because it's impossible because he could not have said it's power. Just realize there's two different issues. One is when does God say this to Moshe? When does this come down? And then when does, meaning one is horizontal, one is vertical. When does it come down to Moshe? And then when does Moshe give this over to Paro? To say that Moshe gave it over to Paro now, that I completely understand. But what Rashi also said is, therefore, obviously, he received it at this point, and I hope you all realize that that's something which we could debate. So hold, hold on to that, and you'll see that there are those who debate it. But first, there are others who are going to find it difficult to in Rashi for a whole different reason. In source number six, we now move over to the next chapter, the beginning of uh, all the laws, <laughs> all the laws being shared about how we're going to be leaving Egypt. God said to Moshe in the land of Egypt. Rashi writes, "Be'eretz Mitzrayim, chutz lekrach outside of the city. Oh, ain't elabetocha krach? Is it in the city? Talmud Lomar, kitzeti etair outside of the city. Umatzfila kalalot palo betocha krach, just like Moshe." would not pray in the city itself and only when he would go outside, dibur chamur lakoshkein, when God would speak to him even more so, which means, go back to our uh, vertical, <laughs> when, Moshe, when Moshe speaks to God, he won't do this, we'll, we'll see the consideration in a moment, he won't do this inside the city itself, so therefore God won't speak to Moshe within all the more so, why wouldn't he speak in the city itself? Because it was full of idolatry. It was a place which is full of tum'ah, a place which is full of, uh, of, of avodah zarah, which means, you, you know, every now and then people get, the, you know, get a question like, they're in a, a Christian hospital and there is a, a, a cross on, the, on top of the bed. Am I allowed to daven in the room? Am I allowed to be there? And I know, so people like, well, We'll ask questions like this over here. What Rashi is really telling us, he's dealing with that question. He goes, Moshe can't talk to God with all of the idolatry around. He's got to leave the area and go to a place which is a spiritually sterile area and not a place which is overwhelmed with idolatry. And he says, so, and all the more so, God would only speak to him there. So over here, it's saying that Perak Yudbet, when God is about to speak to Moshe, it clearly, Rashi says, could not have taken place in the city. It had to have been outside because that's the way that these things work. Now you realize that Rashi a moment ago told us almost a chapter before this told us, that while Moshe is still there in front of Paro, and I can assure you, in front of Paro was a place which was full of idolatry, that that's when the prophecy came down. So you're going to find now that there are going to be all kinds of people questioning Rashi. Hold it, didn't Rashi just now contradict himself? So which way does it go? Did God speak to him at that point? Did God not speak to him at that point? So now at least you know what troubles the, the other commentaries post-Rashi. And again, it comes back to this point about being in a place of total 
idolatry and impurity and how you deal with purity in a very impure place, how do you deal with spirituality in a place which is devoid of spirituality or as anti-spirituality. And that's the tension which exists over here. In source number seven, the Datsakenami Baliatosvot, again, coming after Rashi, started by Rashi's family, Vayomer Odnega Achad, Pirish, Lufne Paro Nemarlo. This was said in front of Paro. Right, and now you realize that was quoting Rashi. But Lomar, and you have to say, no, notice, Vitzarech Lomar. We're forced to say, you, you, it's almost like you can't say it any other way. Vitzarech Lomar, So we talked about vertical, that Moshe could not have had his feet on the ground at this point because it was in a place which was tame, so God must have lifted him up a little bit so that he could have received it there. Now, now again, w- whether you, you want to read this as pshat or not, this is, this is absolutely fascinating, what he's doing, because you know what's troubling him, and he's saying, it, it, you have to say this, but why do you have to say this? Because, because what else are you going to say? How could it be? How could, and again, he didn't raise the contradiction in Rashi. He's just isolating on God speaking to him in this particular place. And how, really, how could that possibly be? The Ibn Ezra is going to pull out one of his favorite tools from his tool shed. And he writes, and this is not the first time he uses it, even though maybe in your mind it's the first time he uses it, but it's not. But Yom Hashem, now, over here, one second, So he's explaining that things are, are written or constructed in an interesting way, and I'm not going into details. And when was this said to him? Remember Rashi said, must be, it was said to him then. Again, I, I already gave you the hint about this earlier, that the idea of the killing of the firstborn is specifically connected to God. Let me make this a little easier. Look at source number 10. So where is Moshe now? He's still in Midian as he's preparing to go back to Egypt. Look at all the all of the miracles or signs, wonders I've put in your hand, and you'll do them in front of Paro. And by the way, it's not going to work because his heart's going to be hardened. Thus said God, My firstborn is Israel. And if you don't send my firstborn, I'm going to kill your firstborn. So you realize, of course, now, of course, that instead of us looking at this as being the tenth plague, the reality is that this is said before the first plague. This is the first plague that God had said to Moshe, and, and I'll say it again. The reality is, this is the only plague. All the other ones were punished, or, or maybe it's the only nega. It's the, it's, this is what releases them, but God said this to Now you realize that Ibn Ezra is saying, no, you get his point? God didn't have to say this in the palace. 
God already told Moshe this. Moshe's been walking around with this in his mind for a long time now, knowing, essentially saying, you know, really thinking, okay, when is God going to tell me, when is God going to say, okay, now pull that one out on him, and, and, and then it's over. Meaning this is the only one that will end up releasing them until now power is just going through a whole lot of uh, suffering, which apparently he is deserving of. But Ibn Ezra's point, and again, if you really think about it, it's great. And, and the truth is you don't really have to get to the Ein Mukdam Mukhar because Moshe, it didn't say here, and God said, right? It's saying, and Moshe said that God said. So when did God say it? So God said it way back before. Let's go back to the Ibn Ezra over here. Okay, then he gets into more of a, of a minor point about this. The, the Ramban, again, aware of all the, everything that I've said so far, in source number 11, quotes Rashi, that God said it here, and he says, that God had to jump in over here, as it were, that God just now, again, our problem is the spirituality in Egypt, that the Ramban quotes, that at this point God had to enter into the palace as well, and if you look at all, you go back to all the plagues, God did not communicate with Moshe in the palace in any of the plagues except for this one. So again, the Ramban is understanding like Rashi, that, 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 not like the Ibn Ezra, like he's saying it right now. Normally it says that he would go out of the city, which was actually one of the points Rashi raised. That God jumped in and, as it were, spoke to Moshe in the palace. And then he says, at the top of the next page, and I wonder what he really means by this. I'm going to suggest something. It didn't want to overstate this and tell you exactly what God said and rather just said that God heard it, which means we're in the palace over here. It's full of tum'ah. It's as if he's saying, and I think he is, that it's inappropriate for God to be speaking here, even though he is. Let's not quote God speaking in the palace in the text itself. Rather, the text is truncated because you don't need God speaking in such a place because this is completely inappropriate. If, if you look at source number 12, now th- this is a more fully developed position fa- by the Baliotosvot. This is the Moshe of Zikanim. It's again one of the Baliotosvot who starts with Rashi, Pirish Rash, that's Rashi, Rabbeinu Shlomo, that was said while he's still standing in front of Paro. And people misunderstood what Rashi really meant. They understand it as if God is speaking to him right now over here. And that's a little difficult. Why? And now he brings the question that I already told you of. Next in Perak Yudbet, Pirish Rabbeinu Shlomo, Ba'atzma, Rashi himself says, It's outside of the city. Or is it in the city? No. We learn that God speaks when Moshe is outside of the city. 
Again, we already saw this, Rashi, that if Moshe doesn't speak to God in the city, certainly God won't speak to Moshe in such a place. Because it's full of idolatry. Then how could God speak to him in front of Paro? So this is wonderful, typical of a Tosvot type of a distinction between the two. For God to speak and give mitzvot, holiness, to the Jewish people, that's not appropriate in such a place. For God to say that the wicked, Paro, and his people will receive punishment, that you could say in front of all the idolatry, because that's that, that that's fine. So that's the distinction over here is correct in Parakud Bet when it was a Chodesh Zelachem and giving us the mitzvah Korban Pesach and so on. That's not going to be that's holy. That's Torah punishment. That's a whole other story. So as I said, he again more than anyone else, he really fully develops the issue, the problem, and at least one solution. He he will further on say more. I'm going to skip a little bit to round eight lines from the bottom in the middle, it says, that, that's the, He quotes this Midrash that he was lifted up. Some say that he was lifted up. If that's the case, that also could have been in the city. So why couldn't, why did Moshe have to go far away? Lift him up over there also. And once you have that solution, why don't you use it? He goes, no, the commentary is misunderstood. And he goes, the truth is Rashi is excellent over here. Which means it's not that God said, that, oh, by the way, this is not what Rashi said. I, I don't know exactly how he's reading into Rashi, but he's trying any. So again, I'm, I'm, I don't know really what to say at this point, but he thinks that that's the, he thinks that he's saying it before. I'm not convinced how he sees that. The Midrash HaGadol in 14 has a different type of solution, but it's the same kind of thing. And how could it be that God said this to Moshe while he is in this place? Instead of God lifting up Moshe, is God brought down a cloud. God, God put Moshe in, you know, this... Uh, the surrounding cloud to protect him from any of the Tumah in Egypt. He made a mechitza. That's what it is. He made a mechitza that, that Moshe had a mechitza around him and therefore God was, would speak to him. And I'll, I'll say it again. I, I, I find that really interesting. The Midrash in source number 15 does use that description that the Ramban told us about. Miyat kafatsa lavelokim, kiviyachol. Nichnas, right? That it was necessary. So God goes into the palace. God goes in, and this is the only time we see God going in. But again, ultimately, I want to stress this point, ultimately, 
I understand why God is getting involved in this. I understand why God is saying this over here. This one, Makat Bacharot, again, nobody said this clearly. This one is God speaking. These are my firstborn. So I, I find it actually quite appropriate that God would come in and say this. Moshe can't say this by himself. Moshe can only say over that God said, this is my firstborn. So maybe for the other nine, it's not appropriate for God to get involved in this but over directly. But over here, maybe there is a little bit more of a usage of it. So now I'm going to pause a second. I want to explain something, and then we're going to try to understand the rest of, uh, of what we have. Egypt is a place which is full of, for lack of a better word, it's full of tumah. There is this description of Egypt being on the 49th level of Tumah, and there is actually a question among the Kabbalists if there is a 50th level or there's only 49 levels, and 50th level is just non-existence or there's a 50th level of Tumah, but uh, it, it seems to be that there is not a 50th level. There's a 50th level of holiness, but there's no 50th level of Tumah. There's 49 of each, and that's part of leaving Egypt and counting 49, getting up to Har Sinai, and so on. Egypt is full of all kinds of Tumah. Part of the way... Now, I don't know who the first one who said this. I can tell you that I believe it's the Zohar. It certainly is popular in the Arizal. It then flows through Hasidic writings on the one hand. You find this in Sephardic Kabbalistic writings on the other hand. It's something which is really quite popular. Part of leaving Egypt is, here's the word, extraction. It's to extract whatever latent holiness is there and somehow turn that whole and turn it or or whatever material is there and turn it into something which is holy. Which means, yes, it's a place which is full of tum'ah. How do we now elevate which is there? So I, I can start and, 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 and point out like some of the more obvious things. I mean, how many times in the Torah does it say that you should not mistreat somebody because you were slaves in Egypt and because you were slaves, you know what it's like to be the disenfranchised. By the way, the answer to that question is 36 times it says such a thing. So, obviously, you just now see, we were able to extract from Egypt sensitivity, empathy, turning it into actions to be able to be people that are a better people. Where did we get that from? We get this from the Egyptian experience. So, therefore there is something which comes out of Egypt. Because you could have said, no, Egypt is full of Tumah. How can we even talk? No. There's a lot of Zeich Litziyat Mitzrayim involved in who we are, and, and most of it is to create situations of holiness. Again, both in terms of interpersonal relationships, ben adam l'chavero, and also ben adam l'makom, in terms of our relationship with God, which means there is something which is extracted. The idea of the Erev Rav going out could be an idea of also that there is all kinds of souls that need to come out. There is, and this is the concept which is found many times within uh, you know, all kinds of different writers, that the idea of the Galut from place to place is to extract holy souls and bring those holy souls back to where they were supposed to be. So this idea of, and it's called Nitzitzot HaKtoshot, these holy sparks, so once you put it like that, you're more getting into the formulation of the Arizal that there is holy sparks. And to speak about holy sparks in, in, in Egypt is nonetheless very interesting. But n- now I want to get back to uh, what happens next. Along the way, we noticed that Moshe said, I don't know how it is that we're going to have to serve. By the way, that can just have been a line, or it could be, right, I don't know. 
And we, we, we therefore have to leave, or it could be that Moshe really doesn't know. Now, one thing which is surprising, forget about God telling us that, uh, you know, either speaking in the palace or not. What I find intriguing is the first time when God says to Moshe, you know, tell power you have to leave and serve me in the desert. So I would have imagined you can't serve God in Egypt. Egypt is this place full of idolatry. To really have this religious experience, we need to go out of Egypt. And there, again, we'll have a sterile spiritual environment. And there we can serve God. How, how can you serve God in the middle of Egypt? Which means the fact that Perakud Bet then tells us that every family or every extended family should take a selah by it is itself fascinating that this is going to be done in Egypt itself. By the way, one of the holy things we take out of Egypt is the Pesach story. We take out, we turn that into one of the holiest nights of the year. Again, realize, we're using the sparks in a, in a holy way. So th- this idea, again, which perhaps is being expressed in terms of, hold it, when did God actually speak? Does God come down? Is God there in Egypt? Well, of course God is there in Egypt. That, that, but does God reveal himself in Egypt? Does God speak in Egypt? Which you now realize was really the point. How can God speak to Moshe in such a place? Well, isn't the purpose over there, as is being revealed, in order somehow to take something which is holy? One or two more points, then I'll get to where I think we need, what we really need to understand, which, which really is a paradigm shift. So, Give me a second. One of the holy things we take out of Egypt is Moshe. Moshe, again, ostensibly born of the Nile, raised in the palace, surrounded with the most unholy possible, but we take that very holy soul, is taken out of the palace, and then ends up going to Harsinai. Just realize, in a certain sense, Moshe is the microcosm of all the Jews being taken out. That's the other thing that we do. I, mean, I talked about the Erev Rav. I missed the other point, the other things which are taken out. And that's... B'nai Yisrael is being taken out. The whole point is to take out something holy from Egypt and walk away with it. Now, now if I had more time and wanted to work harder, we can go back into Bereshit and think now, hopefully more, more clearly, when Avraham leaves. But by the way, when Avraham leaves, just to think a second, when Avraham leaves Egypt, he leaves together with Lot, and then he separates from Lot, because apparently Lot then really was just an heir of Rav and was not the real thing. And now you realize that that actually may have been a precursor of what takes place over here. Avram also walks away with a great deal of money. That money now becomes holy. Now the question is, what are you going to do with it? How much, meaning that money they took out, some of it ends up being used for the Egel, because you have your free choice what you're going to do, and some of it ends up being used in order to build the Mishkan which means what you do and you really turn this into sparks of holiness or not ends up being part of your free will, how you're going to utilize leaving Egypt. So again, I'm just pointing out that all of this is perhaps far more complicated than we would have thought. Yeah, 100%. And that is, is ultimately part of what's taking place. Now, I want to add, as I said, one more element to all of this. Coming back to our final point. Just a general introduction to this. There is such a thing which we can call machshava, Jewish thought. There is such a thing which is called halacha, which is, you know, and, and generally we seem to see, the, to view it maybe with different sides of our brains, right? You have right brain, left brain, you have uh, machshava, and you have, you have halacha. Halacha is very rigid, and uh, machshava is very enlightening. One holds us down, and one brings us up. And for, this is the tradition that I've received from my teachers. Specifically, Rabbi Soloveitchik, by the way. For Machshava to be true, it has to be grounded in halacha. 
which means it can't just be that you could say anything that you want to say about anything, that there must be something there. So I want to point out some things now that for you, and, and, and over here, I, I cut it down to four pages like I almost always do. I have eight pages in front of me. And, uh, and th there's just a lot more to get to, but I, I'll be able to do enough of it that hopefully, that hopefully you'll, you'll understand this. When we end up with the Egyptian experience being over, the as I said, 36 different memories and things to do and actions to do, but notice, I already turned those halachot into something connected to the machshava. The, the main thing is obviously going to be Pesach, and the main part of Pesach is going to be the Seder. And the Seder is going to be about eating matzah, and by eating matzah and not eating chametz. Now, I, I didn't make any leaps along the way. I mean, that was all one thing flowed to the other, which means what is Pesach about? So we know it's matzah, but it's not just matzah. It's not just that you, I know, I'm sure there are some Jews who just get matzah. I, I, I remember uh, as a kid, you know, anybody from New York will know this, that, uh, that the circus would always come to town during, uh, right? And uh, I remember I mean, there were kids who were eating matzah with non-kosher food, like, like with ham sandwich, because, because, you know, their families, they... Right, right, right. There were, there were, and you could look at this in two different ways, right? You, you there, there, there's a very good way of looking at it, a judgmental, and we prefer the, and we prefer the better way of looking at this. But the idea, the idea of matzah, is it's not just that we eat matzah, it's that we don't eat chametz, and it's not just that we don't eat chametz, it's that we go on a search and destroy mission. That is interesting, and that's what needs to be understood, because that actually exists in one other law. That's why I'm saying I'm starting with halacha, and I'm saying, is there a parable, parable, parallel experience to that about searching and destroying? Now, you could have told me and explained it when I say, why? why? Meaning, do we have a mitzvah? And, and this is questioned by, by the Rishonim. Why don't we have a mitzvah to go searching for ham? Right? So go searching your house, your refrigerator, your freezer, go search for ham. And what's the answer going to be? Well, I would hope that there's no ham in your house in the first place, and therefore chametz is different, because chametz, you're allowed to eat it all year, all year round, and therefore it is around, and therefore I just gave a functional, pragmatic explanation about why we need to search and destroy. And that helps you avoid the obvious conclusion about what I want to say. And the obvious conclusion is, is that there is a parallel to this, and the parallel is idolatry. The Jews in Israel have an obligation to search for idolatry and to destroy it. It's the same terminology, it's the same idea, which really means, if you think about it, then chametz on Pesach is idolatry, which needs to be destroyed. And if you would have said to me, what does one have to do with the other? That's the whole point. The whole point of leaving Egypt is leaving a place which is full of tum'ah, extracting the tahara, extracting what's holy from it, destroying what is not, and then walking away with what is, which means this process of creating holiness is what leaving Egypt is about. And once you realize that and then start working backwards, it's not so surprising that they had a Pesach Seder in Egypt the night before they left. That's not a surprising thing because that's part of leaving. Part of celebrating Pesach is creating the distinction between what is holy and what's not holy. And it's at that point that the chametz becomes not holy. And the chametz is associated with uh, the Yetzirah. And the Yetzirah is associated ultimately with idolatry. And anybody think that I just overstepped that? I, I didn't. If you look at source number 17, which a lot of people quote, 
this again is succinct and it's from the Zohar. Katuv don't make gods which are molten, which, which, by the way, and they did, that's the Egel Azav, which actually is the bad ending of the story. There's the Mikdash, holiness, opposite of Nega, is the good ending of the story, which means we have two endings of the Pesach story. And, and those are temporary endings. The ultimate ending is entering the land of Israel. The cut of Acharav et Chag Matzot Tishmor, which means it's saying, note, idolatry, don't do, keep the holiday of matzot. And you're saying, hold it, what does one have to do with the other? Mazah what does one have to do with the other? Why is there a correlation over here? Elakach perusha, this is what it means. Misha ocha chametz pa-pesach, kimisha ovid l'kochavim mazalotu. That eating chametz and pesach is like idolatry. And now you're going to say to me, wow, that's just an interesting zohar, that's such an interesting idea, but what is that grounded in? I told you what it's grounded in. The process of getting rid of chametz is the same process in, and I'm stressing this, in Eretz Yisrael. In Chutzlaretz, there's no obligation to search for Avodah If you own it, then you have to get rid of it. If you own it, you have to destroy it. You don't have to go look. You don't have to burn down your next-door neighbor's idolatry tree. You don't have to do that. On the other hand, in the land of Israel, it has to be a place which is devoid completely of idolatry, and you need to... And, and it is the obligation to search and destroy. The search and destroy of idolatry is... The, is the same thing as the search and destroy of Chametz. And now you realize this process of leaving Egypt is really a process of getting rid of the Yetzirah, getting rid of the idolatry, getting rid of the Tum'ah. And now that Od Nega Achad with its connotation of Tum'ah becomes that much more interesting. And on the other hand, it's create, creating a situation of Tahara, of purity, of Avodat Hashem. So that God will descend and say, you know, this is the end of this type of an existence, and now there needs to be something new. But part of what happens, and this is the language which is used, is a birur. The birur is levarer, in order to extract, in order to separate, in order to say, this which is idolatry is left behind, but how do we extract from the idolatry something which is holy? Which means that extraction is part of what leaving Egypt is all about. And I told you, there's many, many, many aspects of leaving Egypt which then creates holiness. We still have free choice. We could take the gold and silver we took out and we could build our golden calves. Right? And now you realize how close that is to that verse, Elohei Masecha, Egel Masecha. Or we can take it and we can use it to build a Mishkan and have that place of holiness where we're supposed to serve God. But how interesting it is that that's both part of the same extraction. Who, who, who would have thought that that's... I mean, but where else did the gold come from? How would they have been able to build the Mishkan in the first place? Where did the materials come from? And now you realize that this idea of extraction and creating holiness or finding holiness in such places is part of what's about. So yes, God could have spoken to Moshe in the palace because we need, specifically, in places where there's Tuma, we need to create places which are holiness. Should we stay there? No, it's a mistake to stay there. Should we stay there? Can you seep too far down? Can you lose yourself in it? Absolutely. We need to lift up, to extract, to leave, and now to turn anything that we can into something which is holy. But again, note what I did. I, I, I actually said something which is in philosophy, or philosophical, ashkafa. I said it based upon a Zohar, and I say everybody quotes the Zohar, but what I did is I gave a halachic formulation for this, which is an absolute formulation, which really explains the correlation between these two ideas. And most importantly, I ended exactly at 10 o'clock for Uriella. Thank you so much. Shabbat shalom. Thank you.